0: We had our free Melbourne tour, we had our free St. Kilda tour, we had a shopping tour, we had a markets tour, we had a Great Ocean Road tour, we had a Phillip Island tour. It's so many tours. It was dumb. It was so dumb because I didn't understand. I knew but I didn't fully understand that basic principle that if your tours aren't hitting their minimum numbers, you are not making money.
1: Welcome to the Tourpreneur Podcast. Travel industry veteran, Shane Whaley, will take you on a journey with fellow tourpreneurs, sharing their tips, ideas, insights, and success stories to inspire you to make your tour business the best it can be. And now, please welcome your host, Shane.
2: Hello and welcome to Tourpreneur episode 25. This is the podcast where we flatten the learning curve to help you grow your business and delight your customers. Today we're talking with John O'Sullivan from the company Walks 101 down in Australia. And it's fascinating because I've always been uh, curious about the free tour model and I've never really understood how it worked. John does run free tours down in Melbourne and we're going to find out a little bit more about how that all works. And John was sharing that with us that During his travels in Europe, he's originally from Minnesota, by the way, Uh, during his travels in Europe, he was impressed and inspired by the plethora of free walking tour companies operating in many major cities. And when he arrived in Australia, he wanted to bring that free tour concept with him and Early in 2017, Walks 101 was born. He's a very passionate entrepreneur. We had a great chat about marketing, um, the business model behind free walking tours, managing tour guides, uh, the OTA landscape, the digital landscape. Uh, We run the lot. Um, I hope uh, you enjoy this show today because I got a lot out of it and I definitely understand that free walk tour model a lot more. All the show notes for today's episode, you can find two of forward slash 25. <laughs> Welcome to Tourpreneur John O'Sullivan. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. And I really appreciate you staying up late at night because you are in Australia. I'm up here in the state of Vermont. It's nine o'clock for me in the morning, 11 o'clock in the evening for you. So yeah, uh, this is nothing. This is fine. Yeah, great. So you are the director of a tour company called Walks 101. And I was very interested to get to know a little bit about your business and certainly your journey because you are a Minnesota boy now living in Australia via, via my home country, the Principality of Wales and, and various others. So I'm really curious to dig into your journey here. Before we do that, though, could you share a bit more about Walks 101 and what you guys do?
0: So Walks 101 is a business that I started back uh, about two and a half years ago now and we welcome tens of thousands of people a year through our tours uh, in Melbourne and the, the main way that we do that is with free walking tours. It's a concept that I, I got to know pretty well when I was in Europe. I used to work for the company that originated the concept called Sandemans, but when I came down here I was surprised to see this hadn't really developed in Australia and New Zealand as much as I would have expected and so that's what we do. We run a free Melbourne walking tour in English and in Spanish And those tours run on a pay what you think it's worth basis. And we also have some more traditional tours that run uh, like a hidden laneway bar tour and an eco adventure.
2: Sure. So how does that work exactly? Because I've seen the Sandeman's tours in Berlin, for instance, because I spent a lot of time in Berlin. I'm never quite sure how that business model works. Could you talk us through that?
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting one because it started uh 2005, I believe, is when Chris Sandeman started it. You'll have to talk to those guys about that because I'm not sure exactly. Yeah. Uh, the concept is pretty, pretty straightforward. Uh, you come on the tour. If you like it, you can give whatever you think the tour has been valued, but that's completely up to you what that is. If you don't like the tour, you're not obliged to give anything at all. And if you really like the tour, maybe you'll give a little bit more. Something that I see at least in Melbourne, but also all over the world is that walking tours can be just damn expensive. In Melbourne, I actually did a little calculation. The average walking tour price for a public tour is $89, which wow. you know, is reasonable for most businesses especially in Australia. Business is expensive to run, but we're just completely eliminating a whole segment of the market from walking tours. And so, what do they do instead? They go on the tours that the person who's been there for a few weeks gives at the hostel, or they do a self-guided tour, or they go to the bar. What are we doing for these people who either can't afford $89 or haven't planned ahead, haven't made a reservation? Because walking tours also fill up very quickly. And so, that's kind of the concept is that we open up the Tours for just about everybody look the group sizes will be a little bit bigger than if you pay $89 for a tour where that's usually where you're going to expect to see you know seven eight nine people on a tour probably our tours are probably going to be closer to 23 26 30 people at the most maybe 35 people but uh the trade-off on that is that you can just show up
2: you don't have to make any bookings in advance I have to ask you this. How many people refuse to pay? So uh, proportionately, because <laughs> I'm really intrigued by this. You yeah. Know, how many cheapskates are on your tours?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's I train our tour guides, and one of the things I say when I train them is that if you are uncomfortable with the fact of people walking away and giving you nothing, this is the wrong job for you. If I have a group of 20 people, one or two will give me absolutely nothing. One or two will give me $50. Most people will give 10, 15, 20, somewhere in there. It sounds like a much riskier proposition than it is, but for people who do it, like me, for a long time, we know that we're going to hit a certain average and it's going to be relatively consistent. We might have an off day, but that off day will always be offset by a pretty good day.
2: Well, I admire you, because I think you know, with my cheeky humor, I'd be tempted to say something, to something. <laughs> didn't even give you you know money for
0: a beer. <laughs> it's it's one of these things like there's some strategies to it. So for example, people need to understand that I am not a volunteer. People need to understand that this is not something that I'm being paid to do. This is something that they are coming on the tour and I only make my living when they value the tour. It's a really interesting game that you have to play because you have to be careful not to ever guilt anyone. Uh, the whole concept of the business is is built around making sure that people really do have the opportunity to give nothing and us being confident enough as guides that they won't do that. It's all about setting the parameters at the very start of the tour and explain, hey, this is the tour. I think the tour is going to be good enough that you're going to want to give something at the very end.
2: Brilliant. No, that's a very interesting business model. And obviously I can see from your website, you've got quite a few tour guides, we'll dig into that later on. So you're actually doing something right. So looking at Melbourne in particular, so you have the free walking tours, and then you have the Uncover Hidden Laneway Bars. Is that a paid-for tour, or is it the free one? Yep, so that tour runs for $39. Yeah, which when you compare it with your average of 89 that's still a bargain. Yeah,
0: it's still well below anything else that's in Melbourne, and that's one of the things that we do. So even if it's not a free tour, the guiding principle for me for Walks 101 is that I want these tours to be accessible. And so that tour, we keep it as a smaller group tour. So we never go more than 12 people on those tours. We also make sure to throw more guides on the tour. So we try not to turn people away. We try not to let it sell out. It's one of these nice things about having a free tour business is that I require a lot of tour guides. At my peak, I had 26 people on our team. Wow. And that meant that I had a lot of available hands to give more tours. If I saw that there was a lot of pre-bookings for a certain date, I'd say, hey, can we get a few more people out on these tours? And they would come on out.
2: You talk about pre-bookings. What booking software are you using to get those? Yeah, we're on Fair Harbor. Right. And how long have you been with Fair Harbor? It's been about two years now, I believe. And were you with anyone before that or? Uh, everyone.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot. It was, uh, first, there was no one. And then it was uh, Treksoft for a while, uh, yeah. Checkfront for a while, ResD for a while, There are a few challenges that I had, one of the main ones being that it's a free tour and a lot of the business models of these guys that they charge per booking. And so it's a bit of a non-starter at this extremely high volume. If we're not sure they're going to give any money at the end to be paying 30 cents or 60 cents or 90 cents for each booking on top of a monthly fee.
2: What is it about Fair Harbor? Because you've been with them for two years. What are they doing that is really helping your business?
0: Really early on, I think I was one of the first people to come on with Fair Harbor when they entered the market in Australia. They made a big expansion here. They reached out to me and they were the first ones who were willing to listen to my business and to change things around in the way that they operate, which is something that not just reservation softwares, but any any technology provider, I find, if you're talking to the salespeople, they have a script and it's not very pliable. It's not like they can introduce new products all of a sudden. I said to the guys, look, I have this thing. It's a free tour. I don't know if I'm going to make any money off of it, but I know you guys have this percentage model. They said, let's give it a shot. And they actually jerry-rigged. They programmed up a special thing for me to allow people to register on the spot so we could still. Do the customer data capture, which I don't know that they would do now that they're at scale. <laughs> but it was one of those things where I just felt listened to in the early days, which is something that can be hard to
2: come by with a lot of tech providers. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but many of the Fair Harbor directors listen to tourpreneur, so you have their ear right now. Oh boy! Uh, is there anything you wish Fair Harbor would do that would help your business? Oh boy!
0: <laughs> um, I mean, every reservation software has things that it can improve on. So, it's yeah. it's not going to be unique to Fair Harbor. The biggest concern that I have in the big scope of things is what's going to happen as I grow. Because the Fair Harbor business model is way different than any of the other business models. They charge a percentage of booking, at 6%. And my conclusion will be made for me as I get to scale. My hope is that I can be in multiple locations. There's just going to be a mathematical equation that I hit at some point, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years down the line, and then what happens? And so I appreciate that they're in the early days trying to have a very streamlined, uniform business model saying 6%, it all goes to the customer and that's that. But I wonder how it's going to work as I get bigger. That's, that's the one thing. The other thing that I think about when I think about them is it's a really pretty piece of software. It works. It's just really user-friendly. You can dive in and I really appreciate that. And I really, really appreciated it early on when I was getting started and I didn't know anything about software. And it's actually, it's done such a good job now that I've become like this power user of it. I'm hitting the ceiling in a lot of cases uh, where I can't actually go in and tinker with things as much as I would like to. There's certain things like Changing around percentages you're giving to certain affiliates or really taking a deep dive into their tracking, conversion tracking on like Facebook ads and that sort of thing. That I can't actually dive into as much as I can on other pieces of software. And I would really love it if they had like a power user's version of it. I I understand why they don't because I'm a weird case study of like someone who has a background in marketing and is really interested in technology. And I know that's not most tour operators.
2: Well, actually, it does depend. I mean, I speak to a lot of tour operators, tourpreneurs that do everything themselves. They're like you. They want to be able to you know, open the hood and fix things themselves. So I think it's really good feedback for Fair Harbor. And I I ask you these questions because I think there's a lot of our tourpreneur listeners who are still unsure who to work with because there's 150, 160 plus of these companies out there and it can be a bit of a minefield.
0: The, The biggest thing for me, it's not just unique to Fair Harbor, it's every reservations platform. The thing I really don't like is this percentage thing as operators, it seems like every few months, there's a new thing that comes along. It says, we're no money up front. We just want to charge you this percentage of bookings. And you start adding up those percentages, and it's giving away equity in your business. And that can be a bit frustrating. Like, I'm getting to the point now where I would rather just pay a large amount. So I think I did the calculation, and even with my volume on ResD, I would be paying five or $600 a month on it. And I'm getting to the point where I'm like, yeah, let's do that. Just because I I know what's happening, I know the transaction that's happening, Fair Harbor tells you that the the customer pays for the booking. And you tell Fair Harbor how much money you want to charge for a tour. And then on the front end of the system, when a customer tries to make the booking, there's a booking fee that's added to it. And Fair Harbor's contention is that that's not money that you ever spend. Your business is sound and everything's good. But I think my pushback on that is, well, if a customer is willing to spend that on my website, then that's lost revenue for me. And so I question the, the logic of that a little bit, especially when I start to wonder about how much comparison shopping is going on between our website and other OTAs, and then I'm losing money to commissions and that sort of thing. It's, ultimately, it's not a huge concern for me right now, though my focus is more on growth and they have a really sleek piece of software that just works. And it's, it's like that the same thing as like with Apple. Like, there are some things you can complain about Macs, but at the end of the day, it's simple, it's nice, and I've got more important things to worry about in the business.
2: Do you think Fair Harbour is a good option for someone who's just starting out, who doesn't need all those bells and whistles that you need? And I ask you this because you've used quite a few platforms.
0: That's exactly who it is good for. I've talked to a lot of people who are starting businesses, and I usually push them to either Fair Harbor or Checkfronts, depending on what they need. I used to work for Sale Croatia, and I developed a MedExperience brand with them. And we used uh, Checkfront over there because we didn't need any API connections. We didn't need any plugins. We just needed a way to generate an invoice, to have a payment processor, and that was it. So if someone needs really nothing, if they just want to have people come to a website and make a booking on a website, I'd say Checkfront is probably the way to go. But... If you're doing anything involved with anything higher level, with being on TripAdvisor or Get Your Guide or Booking.com, anything that requires any kind of API link, Fair Harbor is kind of the next level up there. And I think anyone running a day through operation, I would imagine, would be doing some degree of OTA work.
2: Sure. And I, and I do want to put a caveat out there that I, I, I do get quite a few emails from people who say, hey, you only ever interview Fair Harbor customers on tourpreneur." <laughs> not true. It just seems that Fair Harbor have a higher penetration than <laughs> anyone else. And before we jumped on this call, I didn't even look at your book I've already done my research. I mean, here's my point is to, to all the other res companies out there, please get in touch with me and suggest one of your customers who'd like to come on the show more than happy to arrange it. I'm not sponsored by Fair Harbor or taking any <laughs> I'll cash. Say,
0: I'll, I'll say, nice things about the other ones too. Uh, is really great power user software if that's the one where if you really want to really tinker in there, I think that's what it's for, but way yeah. too much for what I needed when I jumped on. And TrekSoft is really doing interesting stuff with the, the European space. I think there's a bit of geographic stuff going on. Plus TrekSoft guys are lovely. I've had a few drinks with them yes. before and I
2: think everyone's doing they're, all they're all lovely. They're all lovely people. It meet yeah. them all at arrival. And that's the <laughs> other thing I would say is for tour operators who are considering who they're going to pick, you know, do consider to go into to events like Arrival because they're all there. They have booths and you get time to really talk to them. And and they have demo labs and everything else. I think if listeners can afford to go to Berlin, Bangkok, or it's Orlando this year for Arrival, that's well worth the investment just to get FaceTime. Tell me about that, actually. I'm thinking about Bangkok this year. Were you at Bangkok this year? No, I I didn't make Bangkok this year. I'm hoping to go next year. But we're just about, depending when this episode goes out, is actually we're airing the sessions on the podcast in a a partnership with Arrival, so you're able to listen to some of those sessions. So I think, you know, with Arrival, that's really cool. And one of the reasons I was excited about this partnership on the podcast is because when I go to Arrival... There's so many sessions I want to attend and demo labs, but then you end up networking and chatting to people and say, oh, oh, let's grab a coffee and talk about how you grew your business. So you end up not always going to the sessions that you want. But that's the good thing about Arrival. For me, I would say the number one value is the networking. And I know on episode one of this show, Taron and Alice were able to meet uh, a bike manufacturer. They run bike tours in in North Carolina and they got FaceTime with a company that sold the bikes they wanted and they couldn't get a response from the Company they wanted to work with. It was something I can't quite remember now. But anyway, they met those people at Arrival and were able to do a deal. So that's really solid. And then all the learning you get because. Again, caveat, Aviat, Arrival aren't giving me money to say this. I know I I promote them a lot, but they also, and this is quite unique for conferences, they share many of the videos from the sessions as well. So even if you miss that session, that discussion with the head of Clue or whatever, you can watch it at home, pour yourself a cup of tea and watch the video there. For me, the networking is second to none in the tours and activities industry at Arrival.
0: Yeah. Does it matter which one you go to, Berlin or Miami or Bangkok?
2: I mean, ooh, tough question because I've been to Berlin. I've, I've been to the United States once. I would say probably start off with the region that you're operational in, just in case, like you said earlier on, there are local differences and, and maybe what's happening in Australia is different from what may be happening in the US or Europe. So, uh, but they're all great and, and really, you know, it, it depends on. No, actually, you might be like, no, I want to network with the American market because they may do certain things better in terms of marketing or be more advanced, but. Yeah, I mean, maybe go to the Bangkok one and if you enjoy it, say, well, actually next year I'll I'll go to the US or or to Berlin. Thanks. Yeah, check in the post, right, Bruce? (laughs) 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 Right.
1: Want to connect with other tourpreneurs? Then join our Facebook group at tourpreneur.com forward slash Facebook.
2: I wanted to touch base with you on growth, which this is really, really important because one of the things that we try and do on Tourpreneur is flatten the learning curve for growing a business and delighting customers. So how many years has Walks 101 been operational? Two and a half years. So two and a half years. So first of all, what obstacles or hurdles did you have to overcome to get the business up and running?
0: You know, I came off of a pretty difficult experience when I was coming over to Australia. I got down here because I'm married to an Aussie and we were living in London prior to this. And whilst in London, I had left multi-day tour company and I had this idea of starting my own multi-day tour company in the USA doing RV road trips. And so I spent two years of my life with this business called Turtle Rabbit Travel and led four departures on this. It was really fun. But just in the background, I was doing free walking tours to make some extra money. It was never meant to be anything more than that. Eventually, when my wife wanted to be closer to her family, we made the decision to come down to Melbourne, which is a place I've been coming to since 2012. And I had the roadmap. I had worked with Sandimans to start out with, and then I moved on to Free Tours of London. And I worked with them to help them rebrand as Strawberry Tours. And so I had this really great opportunity to see two very different companies work with the same model and identify what I thought worked and what didn't. But all the things that I thought could be improved upon I couldn't really work on until right now, this moment, two and a half years in. Because in the very early days, when you're just getting the word out there, it's just a matter of, you know, hitting the streets, standing on a street corner with a big umbrella every single day and giving the tours. And, and I've been a tour guide for 10 years now. And so I know how to give a tour. I know the introduction. I know how to welcome people. I know how to get the group feeling excited about what they're going to do. I know how to end a free tour with a big story to make people really think and re- reflect on their time. It's fun, but it's not like stuff I'm running into now, which is more of a challenge. So, now that I'm two and a half years in, I'm in this place where it's like, oh, what does it mean to have to hire somebody and have an operations manager? And it's not me anymore. Now I'm someone who's a step away from it. And how do I give someone support in a way that helps them? Or what does it mean to have to get a public liability insurance policy that is what the city needs for us to operate? These are the, the challenges I have now. But it hasn't been easy. It's just been predictable. They knew what needed to be done. It was just a matter of doing it
2: if we could get in a time machine and go back two and a half years ago, what do you think you would do differently (laughs) based on what you've experienced in the last two and a half years? Yeah, maybe I got ahead of myself. I can tell you a lot.
0: (laughs) 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 Um, I think like a lot of people who are tourpreneurs, I get very excited by product, by the idea of developing a new product. If you were to come over here about a year and a half ago, you would see me running no less than 14 different tours of Melbourne. We had our free Melbourne tour. We had our free St. Kilda tour. I'm an American and so I thought it'd be really fun to do an American food tour of Melbourne. So we had the United States of Food. I developed a tour called Bites and Sites where we went up to the top of Eureka Tower, the tallest tower, and had dumplings and beers and stuff. We had a shopping tour. We had a markets tour. We had a... Great Ocean Road tour. We had a Phillip Island tour. Had so many tours. It was dumb. It was so dumb because I didn't understand. I knew, but I didn't fully understand that basic principle of if your tours aren't hitting their minimum numbers, you are not making money. And so even if you have lots and lots of customers coming through in a January, for example, it's all built on a house of cards. It's all going to crumble. And so what happened is that things were sustaining over the summertime because I had enough successful tours that the losses were being subsidized by the successful tours and then winter came and then everything just crumbled. And so I had a very difficult winter where I took a number of strategic risks at the same time, which is something I've also learned not to do now, take one risk at a time. And I nearly lost it all. I had a winter where I wasn't going to be able to make payroll, had to go into personal debt to be able to bail out the business. Uh, incredibly difficult situation for staff who didn't have any work because I had to get rid of tours, for my wife who had to help out with finances, which is, you know, always a difficult <laughs> marital uh, thing and so all these things came together at the same time. And if I could go back and give myself a lesson, it would be just stay focused. Just be on the ball with the one thing that's working and focus on that. Don't waste your time on the stuff that's not working.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I, I hear this a lot from other entrepreneurs who also set out with, you know, lots of different tours. And then once they pared back, that's when they started achieving success. Because oh, yeah. It's a lot to manage. at oh. once. And I learned this in my early days of booking.com. They had a mantra, you know, before they hit it big, which was don't make me think. And <laughs> if you land on a landing page... Yeah, And there are 14, 15 tours. By the time you talk to your partner, your friends, you research, you're just flustered. Whereas I think if there's just three to five, I think is a sweet spot. I'm
0: going to go even fewer. I think two might be the best. A lot of people want to be the, the masters of the domain. They want to be able to just run their local region. But that's not what's interesting to me. What's interesting to me is building a business that can scale across many different places. And so how many do I need until it's not making the same return? I kind of think it might be free tour, or premium tour, because one gets sales onto the other.
2: Yeah. You started out on Melbourne. How did the decision come then to expand to Sydney?
0: Uh, well it's a decision that's very much still in progress right now it's a It's a decision that will be made it's just a matter of time uh, of timing when it's going to happen with that thing of not taking on too many risks at too many times and so i I'm at the place now where I'm comfortable enough to know what needs to happen next It's just a matter of not pulling the trigger on it until I'm really confident that we we can weather any storm because this is one of the lessons I learned before is making sure that I have three or four fail safes just in case something doesn't work out. And so, I would really like to be there by this summer because the thing that gets me really excited is the idea of having a scalable process by which we can expand to many places at once. And so, Sydney is exciting for me because it lets me test out a theory that I have, which is that I can develop a program by which we can launch off there and then have like a camp when I was working for MedExperience in sail Croatia, I saw this uh, competitor of ours called the Yacht Week, uh, which is a fascinating business. Um, they'd have hundreds of yachts of kind of working professional Americans out to go for a big party. They had some money to spend, and they they had a wild, wild party. But one of the challenges is that they had such an intense demand on the Croatian and the Dalmatian coast of Croatia that they needed to fly in their own skippers. Flying in your own skippers is very expensive. So they had this idea of just having their own skipper school and so they they created their own skippers. They said, come with us and pay us money to go to our training academy and then in exchange, you're going to work for us for very cheap. Not all that is stuff that I want to replicate in my business, but the idea of having some sort of process by which you can really have an end-to-end control over helping people develop as guides. I think that free tours are a really exciting place for people to get into the industry because it's really just jumping in head first and being in front of people and having immediate feedback, both emotionally and financially by the end of the tour. And so I really get excited by this idea of going to Sydney this summer seeing, validating whether my model is right or not. And then, you know, coming back and maybe going to three or five or seven or 70 other places, maybe not 70.
2: It's fascinating. I know a few of our past guests are now growing into different cities. I'm thinking of Jeff, who runs the Underground Donut Tour. Now he's in, starting in Chicago. I mean, and and the thing about Jeff is he... I think he did four years in Chicago before he decided to expand. So he's in Philly, New York, tough market, Portland, Seattle. So it'd be great to bring you all on a panel discussion, you know, down the road and share your learnings because I think that is a logical next step. But well, once, once you
0: do it, it makes total sense because most of the people who come to Melbourne are going to Sydney, and so if you can just figure out what the other places are going to, it's much easier path than when you first start out the business in the first location.
2: Sure. You've mentioned tour guides a couple of times and you are very accomplished your experience as a tour guide so that the cool thing is you know you've been in the trenches you've been on the front lines how do you go about first of all recruiting a tour guide so someone you know you, you advertise for tour guides you've got a cv you know you've got them in front of you how do you know that that person's going to be a tour guide what tips can you share with us for how you interview
0: God, I wish I had a good answer for that. <laughs> if I did, my life would be a lot easier. Um, it is a struggle and it's not something I've found a consistent process for yet. I think there's kind of two sides of the pendulum, uh, two theories of how to hire for guides. One is experienced guide, one is experienced local. So you get that person with a really interesting local story and you teach them all the skills on how to guide, or you get someone with a really accomplished guiding resume, maybe they're new to Melbourne. And I've gone back and forth about what the right person is for that. Uh, I've had success on both sides and failure on both sides, although I tend to swing a little bit more onto the experienced guide side. I think that an experienced guide has things that are much harder to teach. It's easier to teach someone how to go research some stories and learn about the interesting things about the city and really just share the passion with them that's infectious in and of itself. but teaching someone that when you're in a group of people and everyone's grabbing a coffee together and you have this little group of four here and this group of three here and you see everyone talking to each other and an awkward guy is standing in the corner. Teaching someone to just know that go talk to awkward guy and bring awkward guy into the group and say, oh, did you know that awkward guy over here is really into, I don't know, basketball and then having them integrate in. It's like this innate thing that people who have been tour guiding for a long time can just see and identify without even using words. And it's a challenge that I've found is that I have it in myself, but I don't know how to train that. I don't know how to train that sort of little implied things of, you know, you go to a partner restaurant or partner bar or partner cafe that you work at and you say hello and remember the names of everyone who's there and you ask them how their day is. And then you also slip in, oh, by the way, would you mind if you do this thing that's needed for the tour, but then thank them again and then also have a bit of banter. It's just this little bit of, it's I don't know, it's like a je of something where you have to just know, know how to be, know how to make people want to work with you, want to help you. That's, that's a challenge to get people who know that stuff. And I find that people who have tour guided for a long time, usually it's because they've been successful for a long time because the bosses haven't wanted to get rid of them. <laughs> and yes, so true. that means that they probably have those higher level social skills that can be harder to train in.
2: I guess the same any job really when you interview, you want to see passion and enthusiasm for the subject and the role. I would imagine it's particularly for your model, that's crucial
0: yeah, I've been in some tours though with some amazingly knowledgeable people—people people who can just go for hours and hours with original research about everything about a, a particular area. But it doesn't really mean much if they can't—if they can't really entertain you, if they can't convey yes. it to you. There's a big debate in the free tour world right now about whether tour guides should be licensed. Uh, when I was giving free tours in London, there was a lot of tension between the blue badge guides in London the licensed tour guides over there and the free tours because the blue badge guides do a lot of work to go learn a lot of things and they take a test and they spend a lot of money on it and as a result they are you know accredited guides who get lots of charter bookings from school groups and you know educational trips and people know when they get a blue badge guide that you're going to get someone who's really 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 knowledgeable about you know the history of London I would venture to guess, though, that the majority of my customers, majority of FIT travelers, even don't really care if you know exactly the year that a building was built. It's nice to know it, but more what they want to know is what is that thing that gets you really excited about London? What is the thing about, hey, get out of Westminster, go check out Brixton, go over to Hackney, go check out some of the other areas that are not like the the mainstream spots. And if you just go to the London Eye, you're not going to have a very good time. Like That that doesn't take that much training. It doesn't take that much knowledge, but it just takes a a deep-seated passion that you can develop in a few months in a city
2: yeah i know it's a fascinating topic licensing what i'm seeing is i think montreal have you know it's eight month program which is crazy to be licensed uh, and then others that have nothing at all
0: oh, my first tour guide job was with Busabout, about travel corporation company same as like contiki and all that and we'd be in greece or italy and we'd be leading these tour groups around uh, get off buses and this weird thing that we had to do where we had to lead these groups of 50 people, but we were not allowed to guide. But what that means is very difficult to define. And so you'd be walking with people and it, you'd have posters on the wall and say, is your tourist guide licensed? Report unlicensed guides here. And then you'd turn around and you'd say, hey guys, the bar that we're going to go to is over here. After we're finished at that bar, we're going to go on this walk. And then you'd see these two licensed guides walking by giving you death stairs wow. and it was just like where does the line exist because yeah. it's a confusing
2: topic because i think as well in this day and age i mean in theory the licensing is local government making sure you get a tour guide that knows what they're talking about you're not being ripped off but i do feel in this era of online reviews that's soon going to be exposed
0: some of the worst tour guides i've ever had have been licensed guides <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that got tr- tr- yeah. that licensed guides are bad. I'm just saying that they don't need to always be good because if they work for a big agency, they're doing school group after school group after school group, the same hour-long tour at time after time yeah. after time. It's yeah. exhausting, and what what do you get out of it? You know, there's a certain kind of licensed guide that I saw when I was in Greece, for example, that would be you know not great. And on the other side of it. You have ones that are absolutely incredible, but you have to really work the political system to make sure you get the guides you want from the guide pool if you're working with licensed guides. Sure.
2: And in terms of of training, do you ever go out with your tour guides to to give them that feedback?
0: Yeah. Okay. That's an interesting one. So I have a really deeply held belief that uh, scripts are terrible. I think that tour scripts make bad tours. They make for guides who are just doing a thing that it says on the script. And I get why they exist. Like if you're a big scale business, they make sure that you have some minimum level of of quality on there by having these scripts. But I actually uh, I refuse to have them in our business. And so what I do instead of scripts is I say, look, we have marketing, and on our marketing it has bullet points, and the bullet points say these are the things that you need to talk about on the tour because the bullet points say we show you Eureka Skydeck. And so you need to know what Eureka Skydeck's about. I'm really interested in social justice. I can talk all about the you know, feminist history of Melbourne, the first female tram driver, uh, the sort of uh, Irish r- like social movements over here. And so when I go to the Eureka Tower, I talk about its namesake, the Eureka Stockade, the beginning of Australian democracy, the battle between the Irish and the British and the people fighting for their rights and creating the Australia that we know today. And I get really fired up about it. Another guy that I've had work for us uh is an athlete and she's really interested in the fact that you go to Eureka Tower in November, they have a race to the 89th floor, and she quizzes everyone on how fast you think you can make it up to the top. Another guy that I've had work for me, he is uh an architecture student, and he talks about the fact that the tower is designed by the same firm as the Kuala Lumpur Petronas uh, Patronus Towers and the symbolism that's in there. And so it's it's the exact same site told by three different people. And I love that idea that you come on our tours multiple times and it's a completely different thing. And it should be because a guide is not
2: an audio recording.
0: It's meant to be a unique personal experience.
2: Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more.
0: That's what I train. That's what I train. I train people. I say, look, here's the bullet points, go figure it out for yourself. And then I go and audit the tour and make sure that it's okay.
2: With your experience, let's say for instance, you've gone out to audit and evaluate a tour and The tour person has the passion, but they're not living up to your standards. How do you have that conversation? And I ask you this because I know there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that struggle to deliver that, let's call it constructive criticism. You know, what would your guidance be around that? I've never been shy about that,
0: <laughs> giving constructive criticism. I, th- I hope that I'm constructive about it. I, I, when I go on a tour, I take out my notebook and I fill out about seven pages of notes. And I start at the end of the tour, I say, I'm going to be incredibly pedantic about this. I'm going to say every little thing that I think maybe you might want to think about other ways to do it. And so the sort of things that I'll say are like, hey, when you got to this little laneway, there's one person who is still taking pictures. Why don't you say, hey, why don't you come over and join us before starting your speech? or or when you got to this place started to drizzle, why don't you step under here? Or when you talked about the white Australia policy, which is a, a racist policy in Australia's history that's important that you talk about, especially when you're in Chinatown because it's this miraculous thing that developed in spite of the, this racist policy. When you talk about that, you need to understand and be sensitive to the people who are around you and be careful about the words you use to describe Australians who are not white, for example. And so there's a million little things that I'll say in there. But at the end of the day, I always say to the guides, if you're making it work, if you're getting the good reviews, if you're making the money on the tours, there's nothing really that I can do. Like all I want to do is I want to support you. I want to help you. I want to give you the strategies that I use, but I don't really want to recruit a guide who needs the constructive criticism from me. I want to get someone who will get interested in what I'm saying, but then also challenge me on it and go on my tour and tell me, oh, here's things that I would do differently about it. And I've learned from that just as much.
2: Yeah, sure. And I think it's always good when it, an employee comes to you asking for feedback, because they want to improve. Yeah, And I think then that that's the mark of a really good employee as well, because they're like, yeah, I want to get better at this. You've got X amount of years of, of experience.
0: The, the challenge is that it just takes too much time though. By the time you finish finished the very beginning, to the very end, it's three and a half hours of your day and it's, it's an inconvenient time. And so I would like to say that I was a lot more diligent with going on everybody's tours, but there comes a point where you have to let the numbers speak for themselves. You can see whose names are coming through on TripAdvisor. You can see who you're getting emails about. And to an extent, you don't need to go. The times you need to go when there's a red flag, when someone says something was said that was maybe not accurate, or when someone... Uh, Gets a negative review. That's, that's the time when I more want to go. But there, there are people who have been with guides with me for a long time, but I've not been on their, their full tours. It's just, it's not something I say with pride, but it's also something that if I want to grow a national business, I need to find a way to get like quantitative uh, criteria to find out if someone's doing a good job.
1: Did you know every weekday Shane curates the most interesting news articles in tours and activities and sends them out in a snappy daily digest? Grab your copy of the Tourpreneur Daily Briefing at www.tourpreneur.com.
2: Let's switch tracks a little bit and talk about marketing and growth. So you mentioned earlier on when you started up, you hit the streets and and I, I guess you pitched and canvassed on the streets. What else did you do to get the word out about Walks 101?
0: One of the best things I could have done is start in Melbourne. Um, this city is incredibly welcoming and hospitable to tourist economy, the visitor economy. One of the first things I did is I went to the Tourist Information Center, and I walked around like some kind of idiot, and like looked at all the brochures, and I like went to all the people who worked there. I'm like, can you tell me how to start a tour business? And I, just, I didn't nice. know anything. And then I had this amazing guy. His name is Bennett, uh, and I'm going to email him so he hopefully he can hear this, because he sat me down and he said, look, you want to start a tour business? That's great. Here's what you have to do. You have to register for the local tourism body here. You need to get insurance. You need to prove that you have it. You send us a brochure and boom, your brochure is in the info center. And that was the first thing that got the ball rolling on it. The other thing that I did is I called a mate of mine, Angus, who had worked with me in London for a while and he helped me write the tour. And so, two of us kind of workshopped it for a few weeks. We walked the routes, we talked about it and just doing the tour in and of itself was helpful. And then we just tried to stop at every single accommodation, every single travel desk, every place that was even tangentially related to travel, we tried to stop by. And then it's a matter of showing up on that first day. We had a blue umbrella and I was too poor to actually get umbrellas with our branding on it. So I had, I'm not crafty at all, but I had my wife draw a stencil for me with the, the sort of crappy logo that we had at the very start. And we spray painted an umbrella. Nice, And it kind of stuck together at first. We learned that we couldn't fold it down within 24 hours of, of spray painting it. But it's just standing on corners. And the first day that we had a tour, two people showed up and I was ecstatic about it. I was so excited that like, I couldn't believe I slapped a poster up somewhere at some accommodation and people just showed up and I couldn't believe that that had happened. And the next day four people showed up and I was even more excited. And the next day, no people showed up. (laughs) And and that was my life for the first few weeks. But I also learned another valuable lesson, which is if you're going to start, start in the middle of high season. Don't start in the winter. Don't do this ramp up thing. Start in the middle. Drink from the fire hose. Because one of the things I did is by starting in the middle of the season, I made sure that Even if I wasn't doing great, like there's so much demand, especially in Melbourne in January around the Australian Open and you've got Christmas period has just happened. You've got school holidays and all the people come down for the Grand Prix in a few months. There's so much happening here that by starting in the high season, I couldn't really screw it up. And then by the time my marketing needed to work, I'd had a few months experience and could kind of refine it a little bit more.
2: And I love that, you know, hearing about the offline activities, like going into the tourist information office, asking for help. And I think that's the big takeaway here is not to be scared to ask, you know, they're there, you know, they want to generate more tourism and more visitors and more people happy with uh, an experience in the city, so they, that they on the whole are very helpful Oh, so man. Not to be scared so,
0: so helpful. Yeah. I mean and there's no way that you can just sit on a computer and have a website and think that's going to do anything, especially in the early days. like it doesn't mean anything until you get the partnerships with the, the OTAs and the, you know work on some SEO and get blogs going and all that stuff. But in the early days, it's going to take months and months and months for that to happen, and so the only way that you can outplay TripAdvisor is by doing things that they can't. They can't physically walk into a hotel and sit and talk to the concierge. I can.
2: What tips would you have for entrepreneurs out there that might be a bit nervous about approaching a, a concierge?
0: get over it. <laughs> I mean, <it's, laughs> you make it sound easy. <laughs> I mean, it's, you, you have to, that's the only way, like the, the only way to, to start, unless you, unless you're starting a business and you have some sort of partnership set up, like say you work at a backpacker hostel already. And the hostel says they're going to send you people unless you have something like that. But even if you have that, that's going to go away. Eventually there'll be something that, that the hostel will shut down. There'll be a flood. There'll be, I don't know what, I think that the biggest thing I've learned about business is that, it's being uncomfortable. Like it is uncomfortable. It is really awkward. It is like that thing of like, I don't know if this is going to work or not. But embracing that discomfort and just saying this is the job, like it will never not be that. And so, the things that I'm doing now have changed. Now, the things I'm uncomfortable about are... Employments and fair work, uh, which is a whole thing set of laws down here in Australia, and how to work with other businesses that are competitive but also can collaborate, and all these things. I feel completely out of my uh, just this, today. I was I finished this forty-one page submission to the Victorian Tourism Awards, which I don't know what the hell I'm doing on here, doing uh, OHS reviews and risk management matrices and all these things, and I'm just completely faking it. I've got no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) But Iverglass, Glass, uh, who we were talking about before the interview from This American Life, has this amazing interview, which I would tell anyone who wants to do anything, not just in business, but like, if you want to be an actor, if you want to be a writer, if you want to go to university, anything in the world, watch this four-part series that he does, where he says like, part of doing something is that you have to be bad at it for a really, really, really long time. And that's just part of it. And it's way longer than you think. So, he talks about he was bad at public radio. He's he's one of my favorite radio posts. He was bad at public radio for like eight years and he played a clip from eight years in far past when he should have been good and he wasn't yet. And like, I think one of the best things that I've done is just learn to embrace that.
2: That's really solid advice, and and we'll dig that link out and add it on the show notes because I think that's so important. And I asked that question about concierge, and you kind of laugh and say, "Get comfortable with it," because a lot of entrepreneurs that I meet, they're passionate about their topic or their subject, but you know they didn't go to business school, they never had a business before, and many entrepreneurs, you know, we find it quite difficult. And it's out of our comfort zone to walk into a hotel and speak to a concierge. And I always say that the more of those you do, the better, as you were just saying. It, it's all about experience. But just know in your mind what value you're giving. If you're sharing your tour experience with a concierge and then they're able to share that with a guest, you know the value that the concierge is then giving with the hotel guest Everyone's a winner if your tour is good. It's not like you're going in and saying, hey, you know, give me X amount of thousands for this, you know, sponsorship. The actual advice I would have is
0: don't be afraid to kind of apologize for feeling really stupid. Like, that's something that I will do. Like, sometimes you can overcomplicate things by going in guns blazing and being like, I'm the director of sales with such and John's tour company. And, and like, it sounds disingenuous. You don't feel comfortable with it. You feel uncomfortable and so admit it. And so I'll go in and like, I'll say, hey, how you doing? Oh, good. And then I'll say, I don't know if you're the right person to ask me about this. I'm really sorry. I've got this tour business I'm starting. And I'm just looking for someone to, who might be able to talk to me a little bit about maybe if there's anything that we can do to work together with, with the tour company. And they'll say, oh, no, we don't really do that. And I say, is there like, like a concierge desk? or How, how does it work? You just help me, help me understand how your business works. And just coming in with that kind of the guise of saying, like, I just need you to help me with some information. And also kind of saying, I don't really know if this is the right thing to be doing people want to be helpful. And so if you come in with that vulnerability, it will work.
2: Yeah. And I think what I might do in the future, I'm I'm looking at right now a a how-to series on Tourpreneur. And this might be something that we'll look at. I'm trying to do some educational pieces about different aspects of running a tour business, because what may work for you in Melbourne might be very different dealing with concierges in New York City, for instance. You know, I I think we're going to launch that quite soon. So if any of our listeners have ideas about things they want to hear more about in terms of how-tos, please drop us a note at tourpreneur.com.
1: Never miss an episode of the show. Subscribe at tourpreneur.com forward slash subscribe.
2: You mentioned OTAs. I know we've already talked about res systems. So, uh, what's your view of the OTA landscape?
0: Um, it's exciting right now. It's like I feel like we're like in the front row of like tours and activities history. So that's that's kind of cool because uh, it's I kind of feel like like I'm in the mine shaft underneath working away at my tour company and then these these big like titans of industry who are battling it out and they're like crashing into each other and falling on the ground and the dust is falling around me and all I'm doing is focusing on my tours but then every now and then a big rock falls in front of me and I'm like oh gosh so, so like two weeks ago was it when Get Your Guides uh, COO came out and said the whole thing about how they're worried about the lack of independence in the tour space and so to rectify that they're going to focus on these two specific reservations operators which is really interesting <laughs> (laughs) play there. Um, Fair Harbor, when I started working with them, were an independent operator. And now they've been purchased by Bookings Holdings. And I was listening to, um, I think it was your interview with Peter a couple weeks ago. And he was was saying, anyone who's on Fair Harbor just doesn't know what you're doing. What are you you doing? You're giving all your information away. And then I think, okay, well, then maybe what I should do is go over to Bokun. But then Bokun's been purchased by TripAdvisor. And so, it just feels like there's nothing right that I can do (laughs) with OTAs. And OTAs will be great. And and OTAs have built my business. And so, like, I have really great relationships with Get Your Guide, with Viator, Booking.com, Expedia, Red Balloon, anyone that you can mention. We're on, like, 1st name basis with each other. And it's something that I'm proud to have kind of built up. But at the same time, I worry about, like, all these these things that are happening in the industry so uh, all these conversations that are happening about money and investments and changes and the operators like myself are just sitting back here and just saying what what do you want us to do now because we just want to focus on our tours and so the thing that worries me right now is that the space is alive with global brands and operators that are dictating to operators here is how you have to act from now on from now on you no know longer have forty-eight hour cutoff windows. You have twenty-four hour cutoff windows, and that's just how it's going to be to be with us. I happen to agree with that idea, so it's not actually—I'm like, just using it as an example. But suddenly, there's just a rule handed on from down high saying this is how to operate. And I know it's complicated because tour like operators are so fragmented right now that there's like every city has their own operators. The only thing I can think of that will fix it is if you get a global operator to be at that table because yeah. Everyone in the space is talking about what's going to happen next in travel, and nobody's talking to the people who are actually running the tours. Airbnb experiences, will talk for ages about all of their amazing experiences, but they don't have any. There yeah. are no Airbnb experiences. They are, they're run by local independent operators. And what's going to happen is that those people will stay with Airbnb as long as they want until Get Your Guide Original starts coming to their place, and they'll say, maybe we'll go over here and work with them.
2: Let me ask you about Get Your Guide Originals. So full disclaimer, I was a director at Get Your Guide for three years. So let, let me get that out of the way. That that was <laughs> before Get Your Guide Originals was launched. Because with Tao's warning, I called over a dozen tourpreneurs that are using Fair Harbor. And I said, are you worried about this warning? From, are you going to take heed of the warning from Tau? And they were all like really not bothered who owns my system. I just want to work with an, an easy, seamless provider who's going to you know, help my business. And that was what I got from, bearing in mind, smaller to medium-sized operators. Not, maybe if I'd spoke to the big guys, it would be different. And then I see Get Your Guide Originals. And I hear Tao giving this warning about independence in the market. But then I'm curious to know your view. If Get Your Guide Originals came into Melbourne today and launched a walking tour, how would you feel? God, it's hard. I would want to work with them. Because if I wasn't doing Get Your
0: Guide Originals, then my competitor will be. But at the same time, that seems like a terrible decision for me Uh, because if they come in and say, let's develop a tour together, we have a great budding relationship and then there's some sort of conflict in the future, what happens then? I, I don't know enough about Get Your Guide Originals, they're not even here, but just to zoom out and talk not about them specifically, but just the general concept of an OTA offering a branded tour. This is a real worry because everyone's doing this right now. They're saying you can go on brand X, Y, or Z's tours, but they are never brand X, Y, or Z's tours. They are always being, uh, operated by a local operator who's not being compensated for that fairly. They are being compensated for it, for that by an individual ticket basis, but anyone who's a tour operator knows, you need to hit your minimum numbers. And the the negotiation, the exchange between tour operators and OTAs for decades has been, look, we're going to run these tours. We're going to give them to travel agents for a lesser amount. You guys are going to keep your commission. We can fight and negotiate and debate uh, about how much that lesser amount is going to be. But at the end of the day, it's our job to make sure that we are running a business and we're going to take on the risk. We're going to give it to her when there's only one person there because we know that we have a lot of different levers that we can pull, whether it's selling direct to consumer or to inbound tour operators or to other OTAs. There's a lot of things that we can do. But, but now what's happening is that the OTAs are coming in and saying to operators. Well, we actually want you to run our tour only. We don't want you to take any other clients and we're not going to pay you for it beyond just the individual ticket basis. And so to me, I, I'm trying to figure out what happens next here. And, and the, I've, got, I've got a theory about this. i have got a hypothesis. This is my, my crystal ball. The first step, not an original thought at all. It's that everybody is going to fragments. The tour space is going to turn into Uber, you're going to have all these little micro tour businesses and that can be really exciting for people who want to get their start in the business. I have yet to see a global brand create a sustainable tour business for an operator though. Uh, I don't see that as happening. Everyone says it's to, the market's going to get fragmented. The question is, what happens next? In in my opinion, the next thing that's going to happen is that some enterprising VC or one of the big travel brands or somebody is going to come around and realize, if we just purchase a few of those branded tour operators from that brand, a few of those uh, operations from that brand, and they cobble them all together, they're going to have a global travel brand and they're going to own the operations, And that's interesting and exciting to me because it makes me think that might be the path to finally have someone who's actually involved in the risk management of running tours and the hiring and training process. Because in all the investment that's going in right now to the tour space, none of it is going to actually improving the customer on the ground experience. There's a lot of stuff going on that is great work that, you know, all these guys, Your Guide and TripAdvisor and Booking.com and all these guys are doing with like making the booking process smoother. And if, with, if not for them, we wouldn't have this budding industry. And so I, I don't mean to take away from that at all, but I just worry about the fact that there's going to be billions of dollars invested in this space and who's actually making sure that the customer on the ground is actually having a more unique and special experience. I don't think that the path that we're going down right now leads to that. I think it leads to a situation where every tour guide is a a uni student who's decided to copy every other person on a platform's uh, experience because everyone else is eventually burnt out from the fact that the business doesn't work.
2: Yeah, I mean, we could go a full three hours on this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be a running conversation <laughs> as, I think, Get Your Guide Originals. And they just launched in Berlin this week. You know, they're operational in a couple of cities now. It'll be interesting how, how that pans out. It'll be interesting to see how the other OTAs respond to that. So you're right. It is a very exciting time. I often call the tours and activity space, you know, the, the gold rush, the, the Wild West almost. Totally. The last bastion of online travel to be conquered Everyone's running in mining for gold, and it's going to be interesting to see who's left standing in a couple of years. The cool thing, of course, is that for tour operators, for tourpreneurs, you know, OTAs are great for discovery of your tours and bringing in revenue, but it's not without some pain along the way. And I don't mean that just with commissions, but in terms of account management and setup and and changes to, to tours, etc.,
0: I'm glad we're talking about this because this is, this is exactly why I started the business. I didn't start Walks 101 to be a tour business, like a, to be a small tour company in one place. The thing that got me really excited was that free tours create an opportunity to access a part of the market that doesn't exist? And how can I create that to a scalable, large, global brand? I'm a guy who likes to swing for the fences and that has uh, got me into trouble in the past before, but it's just how I like to operate. I, I like to think about 20 years from now, uh, how can this thing happen? And I think we're at a place now where for the first time, people don't want to go on Segway tours anymore. They don't want to go on on, hop-on, hop-off bus tours of a city anymore. They want to get something different, and they're willing to go on public transportation or swing by someone's house to have dinner made. You know, one of the best things that Airbnb experiences gave for us is they validated that quirk sells. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And thank you, Airbnb, for helping us learn that. But how do we work with that and also make sure that the operators are making sure that they are creating a sustainable ecosystem for themselves?
2: Absolutely. And to entrepreneurs listening in, if you've got some strong thoughts on this, if you go to tourpreneur.com forward slash Facebook, we have an active group on there where we, it's a bit like the bonus content of a DVD. When you watch a movie, you get the outtakes and interviews. You can come on there and, you know, let let us know what you think about what you've heard. Do you agree, disagree, etc., or any learnings that you have. Um, before we wrap up, John, I'm curious to know, are there any books that you feel Uh, We were talking about audio books earlier on, for instance. Are there any books that you feel were really helpful to you, either in setting up your business or sustaining it, that you think entrepreneurs would benefit from reading?
0: I listen to podcasts a lot more than books, uh, which is a a character flaw on my part. (laughs) Not at all.
2: Big fans (laughs) of podcasting. Surprise, surprise. um,
0: (laughs) There are so many great podcasts out there. And this goes back to what we were talking about before with the How Do You Get the Courage to See a Concierge? Alex Bloomberg's startup podcast is one of the best things I've ever listened to. Uh, You need to start with episode one. Do not listen to the most recent episode. Go all the way back to the very beginning. It's Chris Sacca, who's a guy on Shark Tank in the US. He's like a really well-known investor. And it's Alex Bloomberg, who's an ex-producer of This American Life, who's trying to start his own podcasting company. And the episode opens with him absolutely bombing a pitch. Like you're actively cringing when you're listening to it. And then he goes on and documents his journey as he creates a very successful business. And so that, how I built this podcast uh, is really good. The pitch podcast is really good. Any kind of podcast about business that's less than an hour I find it's usually good because that means it's been tightly edited.
2: It's so a good job on the tour <laughs> Trying, it's, do you know what? It's it's easier said than done because there's so much of a great conversation. And I know with with Tony, the, the slice of Brooklyn tours, we went about two hours, and I felt really guilty editing it down oh. to just over an hour because
0: there was so much good stuff in there. But tour. where else are you going to get on a podcast a guy talking about beating a guy's head in with a baseball bat? <laughs> like, my God, that was it. Tony is amazing, and like, I I have to do his tour when I'm in Brooklyn because of that so good <laughs> I know and I
2: almost edited that out because I thought oh you know Tony's a businessman he's got customers but I thought oh yeah that's so Brooklyn I gotta keep <laughs> that in I mean
0: it's amazing I don't think you get that without a two hour interview
2: <laughs> yeah yeah it's true it's true <laughs> brilliant well I will add those podcasts to uh, the show notes for today and, and John where can people follow you online? yeah so walks 101
0: is a company we're really active on instagram so at walks 101 tours uh, is where to find us on there uh, we also have facebook and twitter presence as well right. um, i'm trying a thing now where i'm trying to be a little bit more active on the linkedin uh, and yes. so people can find me on linkedin slash in slash john F O'Sullivan. but in the meantime keep track of walks 101 we'll hopefully be in uh, another destination if we talk again next year
2: You see, and there we are. I will add all those links to the show notes, but also we didn't even touch on Instagram. Any major lessons that you've had before we wrap up?
0: Yeah. I mean, Instagram is a really interesting one that all the social media landscape is changing right now. It's like TikTok is really interesting to me also because you get young people on with that. But Instagram, uh, biggest thing, people want to see pictures of themselves find a way to get people a picture of themselves. If you do that, they're going to look after you, they're going to do anything for you. And so that's been really successful. If you scroll back on our Instagram, it's not the most interesting Instagram in the world. Uh, it's just a lot of group pictures on it. And we try our best to try to make it dynamic and interesting for anyone else who's looking at it. But for the most part, it's people want to see their experience. And so that's what we're doing.
2: Marvelous. Well, John, thank you for coming on. I'd love to invite you back on the show to tackle some of these subjects and some of the panels that we've got coming up, because I don't think an hour does this justice. Mm, I'd love to. Thank you. (laughs) A big thank you to John for coming on the show, for staying up late and sharing some of his tourpreneurial journey with us. I certainly feel that I, I know a lot more about the free walking tour model than I did before. And John, would love to have you back on the show again, because we didn't even have time to go <laughs> into your journey, how you got to Australia from Minnesota via Wales and, and other countries in Europe. And I would love to invite you onto a future panel, I'm going to start doing these probably after arrival, um, where we discuss important issues of the day. I'd love to hear your viewpoint on more uh, issues that are affecting us all in the industry Also, I want to ask you, if you enjoy today's show, please do share it with others in the industry that you think would get something out of today's show, either episode 25 or the previous 24. And if you could leave us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the podcast, whether that's Google or iTunes, et cetera, we would really appreciate it. So until next time, cheerio.
1: Thanks for listening to the Torpreneur podcast. Be sure to visit torpreneur.com to join the conversation and access the show notes, including links to the resources mentioned on today's episode. This is Torpreneur.